week two. How we doing? All right. Grab that Bible. Turn to John chapter eight. John chapter eight. He's back. Um, All righty. Let me read John chapter 8, verse 1. In chapter 7, Jesus has continued to do what he has been doing in the previous three chapters. And he's going to tell the Pharisees, the religious leaders, once again, to anybody who thirsts, come to me. I'm the only one that can satisfy your soul. I am the only one that can cleanse your sin. And the irony of this is the people that Jesus came to save continually reject him. And in chapter 8, we're going to read an account where the Pharisees try to trap Jesus. They try to put him in a difficult situation. And it'll serve as somewhat of a launching pad for us in regards to the nature of sin. And that is our great theme this evening, sin. Chapter eight, verse one. But Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, when the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women, what then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. And when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And when he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. Would you bow your head and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray tonight that you would do a powerful work in our hearts and show us the magnitude of our sin against the backdrop of your total holiness and righteousness. We cannot possibly love God if we have a small view of our sin. Because it is only in understanding our sin that we can understand your love for us and how much we, undes- we don't deserve your grace and don't deserve your mercy. And God, as we understand our sin, it causes us to cry out for a Savior who alone is Jesus Christ. God, as we look throughout the spectrum of the scripture tonight and look at this topic of sin, Lord, would you please fill us all with your spirit? 
We need you desperately, so would you fill us? We praise your name. Amen. All right. I'm one of seven children. I have five sisters. I know, a lot of estrogen. I have one brother. His name is Kyle. Semi-evil, but now he's smaller than me. He's older. And we lived, there were nine of us, and we typically had like a foreign exchange student living at our house because my mom wanted to keep up her French. It makes no sense now in retrospect, but uh, we lived, uh, there was nine of us in the family, and we typically had two French girls living with us, so my mom could talk to them while she did dishes. Um, so we had 11 people, and we lived in like a 1,600 square foot house, which you don't have to be chipping to against to realize that's kind of a tight squeeze. Now, 21560 Placerita Canyon Road had this distinct stench that was coming out from our living room. And we typically thought maybe it was one of my sisters. We don't really know. The twins, they kind of have this weird thing. They don't really shower. And so what we did is we went to the Valencia Mall. Santa Clarita in the house? Okay. We went to the Valencia Mall. And I'm a problem solver. Like, I don't like pending items in my life. So I show up to the Valencia Mall and I say, what's your, what's your strongest candle? And they pull out the Yankee Candle Fall Edition. And we essentially became brand ambassadors for these candles because we were trying to mask this horrid stench coming from our living room. I mean, we were always lighting candles in our house. It looked like a rose ceremony from The Bachelorette. It was like always, always, everywhere you walked, you're like, what's going on here? Is this Beauty and the Beast? No, it's the Art of Anna's family house. house. We don't have houses, just one. Then one night... I'm playing piano, trying to learn Claire de Lune for the 10th year in a row. And I saw just a rat scurry across our living room. And I remember going, eh, whatever. And uh, we just continued to do our thing. Light the candles, the Febreze. I mean, the Febreze is awesome. Uh, No Axe body spray. That's a junior high thing. I was a man at this point. So I like candles. So we continue... To mask the stench. But it turns out it wasn't just one rat. If you've ever seen the movie Ratatouille, (laughs) there's a scene where the old grandma, remember, she shoots that little fan or light and she exposes her ceiling. And what she finds out is that there is not just one, not just two, Not three, not a few. I just made that rhyme up. I kind of felt good. She finds out that there's an infestation in her house. And in our family's house, there was the DMV of rats. (laughs) Stuffed to the rafters, in our walls, in the ceiling. And here's the reality of it. And we can talk about the peripheral, meaning what's in the corner, we see a rat scurry across the floor, no big deal. But what we had to come to terms with is no matter how much we sprayed Febreze and no matter how many candles we lit, the ultimate problem was that we had an infestation at the house's very core. And no amount of masking could could ever cover up our main problem. Our house was infected. It was diseased with rats. When we talk about sin, so often what we talk about are the different things that we show, meaning like there's some little white lies on the surface. 
and little things that we do. We slip up with our tongue or maybe we have a different problem with our sexual appetite and we recognize that as sin. And so we mask the issue. We try to suppress the issue and we light candles around our life. All the while, many people growing up in the church have never understood the most fundamental problem. And it's not just that you have little things here and there that occasionally find themselves within your life. The problem is that for every single human, there is an infestation at their very core. Sin is not just what you do, it's who you are. Jesus says, look back at John 8, and this will be some sort of a bridge for us to understand the nature of sin. Hello? Oh. He said this in verse 7. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to him, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. One of the things that Jesus is doing, this, woman's, this passage is really not about a woman caught in adultery. It's a passage about the Pharisees' hypocrisy. These people that were the religious elite that thought they had everything going for them and that they could earn their way to God. And Jesus bends down and begins to write in the sand and they say, what are you writing? What are you saying? And he leans up and says, he who is without sin cast the first stone because Jesus wants us to understand something. There is no one who is without sin. Are we tracking so far? Okay. This is not in the hidden details of scripture. This is not in the fine print. This isn't size four font at the bottom of a page. This is the anthem of scripture. Sin is not just what you do. It's who you are. I want you to turn once more to Genesis 3. And we're going to be flipping around tonight. And I want you to take notes. And I want to talk to you about five realities regarding sin tonight. Number one that we're going to look at right now is the universality of sin. The universality of sin. In Genesis 3, you know the story. We've already covered it at different portions throughout the week. We're going to read an account, and then we're going to turn to Romans 5 after this so we can get some additional context. Now, in chapter 2, God had told the people, Adam and Eve, that, hey, as long as you don't eat of the tree of good and evil, that we'll have, maintained, we'll have relationships, everything will be good for us. And in the moment that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He's not mincing words. He's not saying, trust me, it won't be great. No, he says very clearly, the moment you do this, you will surely die. Now, It says in Genesis 3 that, in verse 6, we'll pick up there because we've covered the previous section. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, turn from there to Romans 5, and keep your finger in Genesis 3, okay? I want to show you something. Uh, Actually, Romans 5. Yeah, Romans 5. Keep your finger in Genesis 3. Nice, my homie. Okay, are we in Romans 5? I want to show you something. What happened on page 3 of the Bible is the deciding factor for the world that we live in today. And here's why. 
Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Watch this. Who is a type of him to come. We're going to explain that tomorrow night, but just think about it. Verse 17. For if by the one transgression death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Here's what Romans is saying. Turn back to Genesis 3. It's saying what happened when Adam and Eve sinned is that it ushered sin and decay into the entire cosmos. Now everyone that is born is not born morally neutral. And no matter what Luke Bryan says, that everyone's good and they just need education and resources and maybe some religious training to make them more good, you are born inherently evil is what the Bible teaches. You're not born good and then corrupted by the world. You're born evil and that's why the world is evil. Psalm 51 verse 3 says that in sin my mother conceived me. It says the same thing in verse 5. Romans 3, you know Romans 3.23, but I want to show you something as well in the previous section that will hammer this home. We're talking about the universality of sin. In Romans 3.10, it says there is none righteous, not even one. And Jesus steps down and says what? Who amongst you is without sin? The answer is no one. And this is an Old Testament passage Paul is preaching from in Romans 3.10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Did you understand? You understand what you just read? Sometimes we say things like, they're really seeking God. I know they're close. They're seeking. Biblically speaking, no man seeks God. Lost sheep don't seek shepherds. Shepherds seek lost sheep. There is no man here that seeks God. And I'll show you that back in Genesis in just a moment. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. Really? There is not even one. Punctuation. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps, that's poisonous serpents, that would just spray poison, is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their past, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the most fundamental problem with the world today. There is no idea who God is. The reason I believe there is so much apathy amongst Christians today is because they don't understand page three of their Bible. We are born into sin. That's what Romans 5 says, because through Adam's sin, now we are born into sin. And it says this is a type of the one who is to come, and we're going to look at this tomorrow night. But one man's sin ushered in sin and death and decay for every single person on planet Earth, and we cannot escape it. I don't have to teach. I mean, I have an eight-month-old daughter who is so cute and awesome. But it's funny. I don't have to teach her to sin. When she gets mad, you know what she does? She just straight up sheer cons my face. <laughs> and it's crazy going, I watch a one-year-old, my niece and nephew, first word out of their mouth isn't dad or mom. It's mine. <laughs> I'm like, is this serious? Give it to me. Like, you don't even speak English. 
Page three of your Bible means this. The evil, the most evil people you can think of, Hitler, Mussolini, a witch doctor, have the same common denominator of every 13-year-old pastor's kid in here. They are born into just absolute sin. And there is nothing they can do to earn the favor of God. And the gravity of our sin is not dictated by the level of offense. The gravity of our sin is dictated by whom our sin is against. Not by degrees, meaning I'm worse than him or he's worse than me, but, but by who the crime is against, a holy God. But we're not just under sin's universal power. We are also under sin's universal curse. And I want to show you something before I give you number two here. In verse seven of Genesis three, it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Well, I just want you to understand something, that in the garden before the fall, there was an intimacy with God. He would walk with them. They knew each other. They were close. They were intimate. This is why God created man in his image, Coram Deo, in the face of, to the glory of, in the presence of God. And now the very people that God had made in his image to dwell with him, to be intimate with him, to know him deeply, are running from the presence of the one who gave them life. They're hiding from the one who sees all. Hebrews 4, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who sees everything. God doesn't need glasses and he doesn't need security cameras. His vision is all over the world. And so now instead of fleeing to the presence of the one that gives them life, they are running away from him. And from this point on, the Bible is not a book about people pursuing God. No, it is a story of God continually pursuing, showing grace, mercy, and love to the people that continually reject him. So number one, the universality of sin, but because there's sin. Number two, we must talk about the separation of sin. You and I live in a context where God has been reduced to a cosmic grandpa that laughs off the high treason of his little grandkiddos, their little ragamuffins. What we have to understand biblically is that God absolutely hates sin and cannot tolerate sin. Do you know why? Because he is a righteous God. He's absolutely holy. Do you know what holy means? It doesn't just mean that God is perfect. It means that he is totally set apart from us. It's not just that God is bigger and better than you. It's that he's totally other than you. God is not the improved version of you. He is altogether different. And that's what holiness means. It means other. God's holiness is his otherness. And he cannot tolerate sin. And because God is so holy and righteous, sin cannot dwell in his presence. And so from that point on, from page three of the Bible, everyone who has been born under the curse is separated from God by a massive chasm because God is not kind of holy. He is totally holy. And you are not kind of sinful. You are totally sinful. Sin results in separation. 
And now we are not just at odds with God. We are enemies of God. Turn to Ephesians 2. I want to show you something. Yep, yep. Okay. Ephesians 2, 1. It says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of our mind. And watch this. And we were by nature children of, what's it say? Wrath even as the rest. Sin is a rebellion against God. And God allows people in the rebellion to go their own way. This is talked about in Romans 1. Sin is rebellion, and God will give you the freedom to choose your sin. He'll give you the freedom to take your sin as far in any direction. That's how it is with sin. It is a disdain for God's person, it is a disdain for God's rule. It is a disdain for God's authority. It is a disdain for God's will. It is a rejection of God's goodness. And it is a rejection of God's love. And because man is born into sin, they are inevitably separated from God. The reason the world is broken is because the world is separated from the God who made it. Because they are born in sin. So sins, universality, separation of sin, number two. And number three, there's the guilt of sin. I want to show you something in Romans chapter two. I mentioned this the other day. Um, in the book Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis talks about how there's a moral law written on your heart. The idea why even an atheist can look at something and go, that's evil, is because God has written his moral law on your heart. And you would have no idea, he says, that you would call a stick crooked unless you had an idea of a straight one. Does that make sense so far? He's saying in order for you to call something crooked, you have to know what something straight looks like. And here's what the Bible is going to say. The reason why everyone experiences guilt is because God has hardwired you with a moral law written upon your heart. And in that, he has also provided every single person with a conscience. And the conscience is the radar system given by God for you to know that when you act in violation of his will and law, you feel guilty. I can ask you this morning or this evening, what are you guilty about? What is something in your life no one else knows about that you feel guilty about? You know the reason we feel guilt? It's not a social construct. It's hardwired into your DNA by God. Romans 2, verse 12. He says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, in verse 14, he's going to say, watch this. He's going to talk about the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the people that don't know God. They don't know God's word. They're not part of the plan and purposes of God at this point. They just don't know anything, okay? 
They don't have the scripture. All they have is their conscience. He says this, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, that's the word of God, that's the Old Testament, when they don't have the Bible and do instinctively the things that are of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. He's going to say this. When people that don't know the Bible know that it's wrong to murder someone, they're testifying to a certain reality that because God made everyone in his image, they all know that to rob someone from being an image bearer, that's wrong. That's wrong. What Hitler did, dud? It's a new word. It's coming out in 2023. There's first going to be a new disease, but okay. Um, what Hitler did is universally understood to be wrong, right? Why? Because everyone knows that taking a life is wrong. It violates the moral law written upon your heart. He says, when the Gentiles do something like this, when they know it's wrong to murder someone, they are testifying to a reality. God has written something on your heart, a moral code. Verse 15, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience bears witness and their thoughts alternatively accuse them or defend them. You have a conscience and you have God's law written upon your heart. And here's one of the realities that happens because of sin. He who is without sin cast the first stone. Every single person surrounding Jesus at that very minute, you know what they did? They begin to contemplate and consider the very things in their own life that they were guilty about. The conscience is activated by God's moral law. You might be an atheist, but you have something you're guilty about. And the Bible says that's because God hardwired you to know that it's wrong to take advantage of a woman, that it's wrong to slander, that it's wrong to murder, that it's wrong to cheat. And you can suppress the truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1, all day long. And at some point it says your conscience can become so clearly seared that you no longer feel the sting of sin. The conscience functions as a mechanism in order that we would feel guilty when we sin. And because we feel guilty when we sin, sin in our life often makes people, even that don't know God, miserable. Miserable. Sin does not satisfy in a lasting way. Sin looks for fulfillment away from God and never actually finally provides it. Genuine repentance and being a Christ follower demands that you recognize that the reason people are miserable, I mean, there's so many people that are miserable, Hollywood celebrities, the people that have everything that you would expect them to be so happy are often the ones that are the most miserable. Their lives are so far down in the drain because they've tried to pursue every avenue of sin and they feel empty. Why? Because the things they thought would satisfy them actually leave them more empty than before. Because there's a level of guilt there. There's a level that sin never satisfies. This is Solomon's testimony in the Old Testament. It's all striving after the wind. I've pursued every single pleasure. And I'll tell you what, it's a dead end street. It's never satisfied. In fact, it leaves me empty and it leaves me gnawing at my own conscience, knowing that deep down I have violated the law of the God that made me. There are many people who are miserable 
but not many people who recognize that the reason for their misery is their sin. Sin makes us feel guilty. And because of that, it never truly satisfies. I'm gonna look forth with you regarding the nature of sin at the plight of sinners. I'll read this for you and you know it in Romans 6.23, potentially. If you've grown up in the church, this is so familiar to you that you no longer consider its gravity. For the wages of sin is, talk to me, death. You understand that? The wages of sin is death, meaning that what's owed to you because of your sin is death. But the reason there's death is because of sin, so it's a vicious cycle. One of the reasons that you can know that the world is broken and full of sin and that the Bible's real is because death makes, makes no sense apart from sin. It's a curse. You know, after the fall in Genesis 3, you know what you're going to read over the next three chapters? And he died, and he died, and he died. It's a genealogy. You know why? Because the Bible wants something to become abundantly clear. That once the fall of man happens, something else happens. It's that we now live under the curse of death. Death is not beautiful. It's not some transition into a better life. It's a curse. It's a curse. Ask anyone who's lost a loved one. I have multiple friends that have died in the last two years. Death is not beautiful. And for a Christ follower, we can say, I'm so thankful they're with the Lord. But death is a curse. So sometimes at a funeral when you're here, oh, death, where is your sting? That, that's a futuristic reality. Where's the sting of death? Right here in my heart as they mourn the loss of my friend. The sting of death is real because death is a curse. But the wages of sin is not just death on an earthly level. It's death on an eternal level. But it's actually death without dying because it's eternal punishment. I think sometimes on a quest to palletize, you know, the next generation. You know, I hear things all the time that say, we're going to lose the next generation of the church if we stop saying things like this. Anytime I hear something like that, I go, I just disregard whatever's about to be said. We need to make it more engaging for them. We need to stop talking about this. No, here's what you need to understand. Jesus talked about the reality of hell more than almost any other subject. Well, that's not the God I want to believe in. Well, this is the God that the Bible declares, and it's the God who reveals himself as a God of both tremendous love and who never, because of his love, hides the truth. Sometimes we, you know, look at the stories of Sunday school. You know, it's kind of funny Sometimes I walk in at church and I watch the little Sunday school classes and the little kids are putting the giraffes on the felt board of Noah's Ark and it's like all the little, little lions, two by two, um, turtles, Donatello, you know, and, and all these favorite things. And sometimes, you know, you ever wonder, at what point did they hear that there's an ark because the rest of the world is drowning? Because God is absolutely holy and punishes sin. Am I wrong? I'm not. Because it's right there in the pages of Scripture. The plight of a sinner is eternal damnation in hell. Matthew 10, verse 28. It's a beautiful song, sound right there. 
the flipping of the pages. Okay, Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. This is Jesus talking. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Hell is a real place, and it's reserved for everyone who does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 12, Jesus will say the same thing. Do not fear him who can hurt the body. I will tell you whom to fear. Fear me who can cast both body and soul into hell. I hope you see this. I hope you see the plight of sinners. It's not just that they don't live the life that God intended for them. It's that they are on the fast track to eternal hell. Sometimes we say separation from God as a way to pacify that. Have you ever heard that? You know, even at camp. One of the things that I've asked speakers not to do anymore is just to say separation from God. You know why? Because they're already separated from God if they're a sinner. If you're outside of Christ, you're already separated from God. You still experience part of his common goodness because he allows things like Chipotle and, and sunny days in Hume Lake and the beach, right? But if you're in your sin, you are still a child of wrath and you're already separated from God. And you know what John 3 says? It says that you're already judged. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Pause right there. It says that they won't perish, which means that if they don't believe, they will what? Perish. Sometimes memorize the verses and we only see the parts we want to see. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him won't perish. But contrastly, we need to go, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you will. Don't you get it? I'm afraid that you live in a world that loves you so much, they hide what's right in front of you. The reality is, for everyone who does not turn to Jesus Christ, they will perish. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the whole world might be saved through him. John 3, 8, whoever does not believe is judged already. And so sometimes we say things like separation from God. That's what happens when people die. No, what happens is punishment. It's not just that you're removed. I remember one of the first retreats that I came to here at Hume Lake. I heard a guy say something like, you need to stop thinking about hell as a place of punishment, and you need to think about it as a place of protection from God's people. So it's two different Tupperware bins. God's children are put in one bucket, and God's non-children are put in another bucket, and they're kind of put away from each other so that God's children can hang out over here. Don't think about God as a God of punishment. Think about him as a God of protection who just wants to put his kids over here and his non-kids over here. The only problem with that is that it is explicitly unbiblical. What God do you want to believe in? The God of cultural imagination or the God of the Bible? Obviously. Can I just pause for a second? I'm not winning any points by telling you hard stuff. If I wanted to get invited to speak places, if I wanted to get on the circuit, you know what I would say? I would just talk about how sin doesn't satisfy. 
Because really, no one wants to hear that their sin results in death, even though they memorized it when they were four. The wages of sin is death. And if you die in your sin, I love you so much, I have to tell you, you will go to an eternity in hell. Can I read this verse for you real quick in James 2? And, and, and as you're turning to James 2.10, if you have your Bibles, you do have your Bibles, I hope. I think sometimes because people hear stories about how people were scared into you know, the, you know, like they were scared of hell, so they gave their life to the Lord. I just want you to understand that there is a real component of terror of being punished by God. It's always been communicated as a bad thing. Like, I don't want people to just be scared of hell. There's, there's obviously a, an element, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, of brokenness. But Jesus says, I will tell you exactly who to fear. Me. And I think we've lost that. Jesus says, you should be afraid of it. And it should cause you to fall on your knees and go, God, save me. Because I'm born under sin. I'm under the rule and reign of sin. I feel the guilt of sin. I feel the separation of sin. I feel the exhaustion of sin. It's never satisfied. And it leaves me empty. And I know the consequences of sin, not just on an earthly temporal level, but on an eternal level. I know it, Lord. I know it because I see it in your word. You might be going, I'm not that bad, though. There's no way God can send someone like me to hell. James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of what? All. Do you know what that means? It means that you are immediately put on the same level as everybody else. God doesn't grade on a curve. He grades according to his perfect standard of righteousness. So, number one, we have the universality of sin. Number two, the separation of sin. Number three, the guilt of sin. Number four, the plight of sinners. And number five, the sinner's recognition of their condition. In Romans 3, it says this. And maybe you've never recognized this verse. You know verse 23, right? For all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. All means all. But maybe you've never noticed the verse that precedes it by four. Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. You know why? So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. It's far different for you to go, yeah, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I get it. I get it. I'm the only human. No one's perfect. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, God's grace, God's grace, I get it. No one's perfect. 
That is far different than the biblical recognition of having your mouth shut before God. That is total brokenness in recognition that God is holy and that you are not. And let me ask you this. Has your mouth ever been shut before a holy God? Where you are absolutely broken over your sin. In Luke 18, there's one of my favorite teachings of Jesus about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And it says that the Pharisee goes up, waltzes into the temple, and he's a religious man. This guy was deeply committed to the scripture, deeply loved the Lord in his own mind. He was a, a, a godly man, perceptibly. And he just goes, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, adulterers, swindlers. God, I thank you that you've kept me from the big sins. God, I thank you that I'm not like this guy, this tax collector. And this tax collector's far removed over in this corner. And it says he can't even look up towards heaven. He can't even acknowledge God. He's not saying anything. He's not saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like this guy. At least he's a little worse than me. He makes no excuses. He just says, God, beating his breast, looking down, no pride. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then it's going to say something terrifying. It's going to say, I tell you this man, Jesus says, the tax collector, the worst of the worst. Now you have to understand what tax collectors are. There's no moral equivalent. I talked about this in my seminar. What a tax collector did is take the rights from Rome to essentially abuse, rape, and kill their own family members. No one was more hated from a like as a tax collector. And they would have known from their very waking breath that I am outside the purposes of God and every single time they step foot in church, they would have been looked at by the religious people and sneered at. What are you doing here? You don't belong here. You're a tax collector. Get out of here. This place isn't for people like you. And the Pharisee would have been a highly respected individual. He would have taught Bible studies. He would have taught at Hume Lake. But Jesus says something in Luke 18. He goes, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went home justified rather than the other guy. Why is that? Jesus will tell us. He said this. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. There is only one type of person that's in heaven right now. Absolutely humbled before God. Totally broken over their sin. Not just checking the box, I'm a sinner. But it's come to the point where their mouth has been shut and all they can do is cry out, God, please be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't just do bad things, I'm bad. 
Lord, my, my sin has so obviously created a further chasm than what has already existed from the very day I entered this world. And he doesn't say, God, be, just please get rid of my sin. He says, God, be merciful. But Luke is, the writer here, is an extraordinary, extraordinary thinker. There's another word for mercy he could have used, and he's going to use it in the next chapter. But he uses a word for mercy here that's used only one other time in the entire Bible. And it's found in Hebrews. And the word that's translated in Hebrews is the word propitiation. When you think of mercy, you think of don't give me what I deserve. Right? When this man is crying out for mercy, here's what he's saying. God, be propitious towards me. Now, you have no idea what that means, and I know, so hold on. What he's saying is, propitiation means, God, can you possibly find a way for the wrath that is due my sin to be satisfied? He's at the temple, and he's looking at his left and his right. And you know what the temple, it's, it's essentially this butcher ground. At 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. every single day, a lamb would have been ushered in. It would have been examined and then it would have been bound and then it would have been slaughtered and it would have smelled like blood. And this guy, the tax collector, he's an accountant and he's looking left and right and he recognizes there's no way that these animals could ever satisfy God's holy wrath and justice against my sin. I feel it. I know the guilt of it. It's weighing upon me. And so he goes, man, there's got to be something better. There's got to be a better lamb, a more perfect lamb, a more perfect final sacrifice, because it would have to be a million of these lambs to just even maybe temporarily satisfy God's justice towards my sin. He doesn't say, God, dismiss my sin. He says, please, please find an avenue for the wrath that is due towards me to be satisfied. You know what that means? It's not weird spirituality. It is the example that Jesus provides for someone who has actually recognized who they are before a holy God. And it says here that Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. If you think you're the man, if you think you don't really need God's mercy and grace, yeah, I mean, for sure I need it, but... Why wouldn't he have grace on me? Jesus says, prepare to be humbled. And if you go, there's no way on earth God could ever save me. I've done too much. I'm too sinful. Jesus says, prepare to be exalted. Because salvation is for that type of person. There's a common mindset amongst every single person in heaven right now. No one there thinks that they deserve to be there. And if you think it makes sense for God to save you, Jesus says, you're more lost than the tax collector, than the prodigal, than the serial adulterer, the most lost people on planet earth are the self-righteous.
Can I ask you a few questions real quick, and then I'll be done? Have you ever recognized your lostness? I know a lot of you have grown up in the church, and I know I've said this before. It says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I would love to know how many high school students have ever come to the place and position where they've gone. I am a wicked sinner before a holy God. Have you ever come to the end of yourself and recognized that you could never earn your way to God? Have you ever had your mouth shut before a holy God? And said, Lord, I've acknowledged, I've acknowledged and even assented to the reality that all have sinned. But there's something in Luke 18 that the man says. He doesn't say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Meaning that that man has stopped comparing the measure of his sin amongst his peers and started to measure his sin against the measure of of God's righteousness. If you don't get this, you'll never get the gospel. If you don't get this, you'll never get God's love. You'll never understand it. If you don't get this, you'll never go. Amazing grace. Can I pray for you? God, we are grateful for the clear testimony from the word of God that describes our fallen condition, that describes our, fallens, our fallen separation, that describes for us our guilt that we feel. Guilt is something for an unbeliever that is given by God. so that they would go, I want, I want my guilt to be taken away, but not just that, I want my conscience cleared. That's what Hebrews 9 says, that we can come and have our conscience sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. I've been reminded of sin's plight the sinner's plight is an eternity in hell apart from the presence of God. And God, we've talked about the sinner's recognition of their condition. There's no way they could earn it. And they must be humbled and broken with their mouths shut before a holy and righteous God. I pray that for the countless in here, I don't know, I'm assuming hundreds of students in here that don't know you. Would you, would you give them an understanding, God, through your word and through your spirit that they need you? And for those that have received Christ, would you help them to remember their former condition, it says in Titus 3, so that they can have a deepened appreciation and gratitude for the gospel. We pray this in your name and all God's people said. Amen. Love you guys.